0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Scripture Chronicles. This is the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. I'm your host, Dylan, and joining me is my co-host, Corey Howitt. Corey, how are you doing today?
1: Doing great, and I'm super stoked for the show today because we're getting into my favorite passage from the Torah. So I'm super stoked to go through it with
0: everyone. Excellent. So, guys, if you are new here, welcome to the podcast. If you are not, welcome all the same. If you don't know how this works, basically this podcast builds on itself every episode because what we are doing is we are propagating the thesis that the Bible is one single unified story or narrative that points to Jesus Christ. As such, we are going through it as a story pointing out big thematic elements in the story to give you a big overall picture of the whole story. So because of that... If you have not yet listened to the episodes preceding this one, it probably would behoove you to do so. Uh, they do build on themselves, like I said. If you don't have the time to do that, the episodes in Exodus would probably be at least a good place to start. And if you don't have time even to do that, Corey is going to give us a recap of what we went over last time.
1: Last week, we got into this section that a lot of people think is really boring in Exodus, and it is kind of Boring to us today if we don't understand why this is being put here. So we got to Exodus 25, the place where a lot of people's read to the Bibles dies. But we talked about how interesting the things within the tabernacle are and what the tabernacle itself is. So from 25 to 31, and then again from chapters like 35 to the end of Exodus. It's going to be talking mostly about the tabernacle or the priests, and maybe some Sabbath stuff put in there. But from last week, just chapters twenty-five through thirty-one, we got instructions for the tabernacle. And we talked last week that tabernacle literally just means to dwell, right? So God is having His people make a dwelling place for Him, which is so amazing. We talked about how amazing and gracious God is for. Coming down to dwell in pretty much a box or a tent because his people weren't willing to come up the mountain to him, like we read in Exodus 19. So we see the character of God, his graciousness, uh, the love and favor he has for his people. Um, But we also see very specific instructions for the tabernacle. So while we have a really gracious God wanting to dwell with his people, we see a God who is holy and has his people go by very specific guidelines. So we talked about within the tabernacle, there's a holy place where there's a separation from the rest of the tabernacle, which is called the most holy place. So the most holy place contains things like the ark. And within the ark of the covenant is going to be the tablets that have the 10 words on them. And later on, we'll see things like Aaron's staff and some manna go in there. And on this ark are cherubim. And above the cherubim is where God's spirit dwells, which had very clear connections back to the garden. And there's a cherubim that God put in front of the tree of life to make sure that no sinful people came back to it. And outside of the most holy place, we saw things like the table for showbread and a lampstand with these branches and buds that came off the end of the branches of the lamp, which cast light to the rest of the tabernacle. So again, casting light to the tabernacle and these branches going back to creation in Eden kind of imagery. And then there is things really important for the priests and which garments they're going to put on and how they're going to prepare and consecrate themselves. And we learned that the Hebrew word for consecrate is the same as the Hebrew word for holy. So they had to make themselves holy before they went in to serve a holy God within a holy place. So lots of consecrating, a lot of setting things apart for a specific purpose or task of God. And so this is how the priests were to be consecrated. They needed to be consecrated to go and represent the people before God because they were going to have to take on the guilt of the people before a holy God. So we saw just how detailed this process was so that people could be made right with God. We have more stuff about the priest being consecrated, about the altar and different kinds of incense to be burned or not burned, which is going to be really important for one of the first stories that come up in Leviticus. But uh, we end this section with just the importance of following the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath. And again, we pointed out Going back to creation, God you know, spoke all of creation, as we know, into existence, but then ended with the Sabbath. So this section here has God doing lots of creation or instructions for building the tabernacle, the things within it, filled with Eden imagery, but then ends with Sabbath as well. So lots of ties into um, the past of what God has done in creation. And what Eden represented with being a dwelling place with God and man. And then it also looks forward to this person to come who is going to be a priest who's going to bear the guilt of the people on himself. I'm not being super conspicuous here. We know we're talking about Jesus here. Yeah, so tons of things pointing backwards and tons of things pointing forwards that we're going to wait to see come to completion in Jesus.
0: Exactly. And so that was, I'm sure, what we covered last time. It's all coming back to me now. One thing we did point out last week that I'd like to highlight again this week as we go into today's chapters is the fact that in today's modern world, it seems kind of odd, possibly even barbaric, some of the rules and regulations that God places on his people to fulfill his Purpose and being set apart for him. And one thing we highlighted last time, and that again I wanted to highlight this time, is the fact that this is something extraordinary meeting with that which is ordinary. In today's world, especially in the West, we've become so taken by the worldview of naturalism or materialism that everything has taken on this category of ordinary to a point where extraordinary has seemingly lost any meaning. When God enters the world and actually interacts with the ordinary, it is the extraordinary meeting with the ordinary. These things aren't odd or bad or barbaric in any way. This is God, something extraordinary, something other than his creation, actually trying to bring his creation up to his level via covenant. And so like we saw in Eden where everything... Was good until it fell. God is now trying to bring about a state in which we are once again back in that Edenic state. And that is the entire plot of the Bible. And so it makes sense then that in cases like this, that God is setting his creation apart to bring about his good purpose. And so we're going to see that today, that even in spite of God giving them these rules and regulations to set them apart as. Consecrated or holy, that this is a stiff necked people, as the text says. They are foolish insofar as they don't recognize godly wisdom, but instead opt once again for their own w- wisdom, as people do. So, jumping into the text, then we're going to be going through 32 and then all the way through the end of the book in chapter 40. And we'll be again skipping around a little bit and giving really big, major Meta themes throughout this section here. So if you we skip a big section, it's not a huge deal. We're not going to go through it verse by verse, but jumping into now to the golden calf narrative. And so some of you guys who have read through the text already know where this is going. So Moses is up the mountain at this point and he's meeting with God. And he's actually getting the tablets of the covenant law transcribed by God's very own hand to give to the people. This is after Moses had just gotten done sprinkling the blood on the people and saying, this is the covenant law that you are making with Yahweh. He is your God and God is making this covenant with you. And so Moses goes up the mountain to meet with his God and the people go, hmm, Moses has been up there a while. Now we're restless. Well, we need something to do. Moses is probably never coming down. Oh, you're right. He probably isn't. Oh, freak out. Aaron, where's Moses? He's not coming down. How about instead of waiting for Moses and actually having some patience, interestingly enough, this is exactly the inverse of God who has extreme patience, as Corey already has pointed out in a previous episode, the people have no patience and instead go to Aaron and say, hey, we need you to help us out here. So, Aaron goes, okay, take the gold that you received from the people in Egypt as Yahweh actually brought you out. Give that to me. And I'll take that. And I will mold that into a form, a calf. And this form, this calf, is the God who brought you out of Egypt. Let's worship him. And the people go, yeah, that probably is not going to work out great. Corey, what happens?
1: Yeah, so as they say, make us a god or gods. And Aaron puts the gold into the furnace and out comes this cow, as Aaron gives this excuse later. Yahweh talks to Moses and he says, go down, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. You see how God just puts all those people on Moses? These are your people. You brought them up. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf. They have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. And like a few episodes ago, we talked about this being a funny Hebrew idiom being God's nose grew hot. And so his nose burns against the people. Now he wants to consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you, Moses. Yeah, so really not good. So now all of a sudden God's wanting to destroy all of Israel, all the people down the mountain. And he wants to start all over again with just Moses. It's like an Abraham 2.0, which is a really good thought to have in your head. This is a lot like a scenario with Abraham where Abraham's nephew went to Sodom and Sodom and Gomorrah, these two cities became so wicked that God was going to destroy them. And so Abraham tries to do what we'll see Moses doing, tries to say, God, no. Don't do it. What if there's 50 righteous people in those cities? And he bargains God all the way down to what if there's 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah? It's like, yeah, if there's 10, I won't destroy them. And we talked about in that scene that really, if there's anyone righteous, God would have spared the cities. Uh, But the idea is that those cities are so wicked, there's nobody righteous. Everyone was so wicked and perverse and doing what was right in their own eyes. And so here we see God's Telling Moses, right, hey, leave me alone. Kind of like in the Abraham story, right before God tells Abraham his plans to destroy the city, God and these two angels he's with, waiting for Abraham, waiting to dine with him, God says, Should I tell Abraham of my plan with Sodom and Gomorrah? It's a very similar tale going on here. But here, Moses implores God, instead of Debating with God on behalf of the people and saying, "Well, what if there's some righteous people down in the camp?" He does not seek to argue with God or bargain with God by any merit of the people down below the mountain, because Moses is pretty smart. He knows the people; he knows how wicked they are and foolish, and so he implores God on God's character. Right? So why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt. You see that little switchback Moses gives? It's like a couple of parents like talking about their kid. No, this is your son. Me and my wife do that with our little seven-month-old. When she does something kind of crazy, Cassie's like, this is your daughter. Because I always do crazy stuff with them. And so Moses saying, no, God, these are your people who you brought them out. And he says, why should the Egyptians, or for that matter, why should anyone say that, oh, This God is evil and brought them out of Egypt just to destroy them in the wilderness, right? Remember what you swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Israel. Remember what you promised them, how you would multiply their offspring. Well, God, this is your people. Remember your promise and remember your character. And so we have this beautiful picture of Moses imploring God on behalf of who God is and on behalf of God's character knowing very well that everyone down below is wicked. A couple of things within this story that we kind of went by really quick. In your translations, it'll say when the people are talking to Aaron at the very beginning, I'll say, up, make us gods who shall go before us. Um, anytime you see uh, God, the capital G, or even gods with the lowercase g, but plural, this is the same word in Hebrew. We might have talked about this a little bit a while ago, but it's worth rehashing now. When Hebrew writers and thinkers want to make an idea important, they will pluralize it. So if you have ever heard the Hebrew name Elohim, it's more of a title, not a name, but Elohim is God. Now, that is a plural word for God. Singular version of God is this El. If you want to add... A plural onto something, you add a heme of some sort. So Elohim is usually translated as God, but it could also mean gods. So our translators try to keep us on track. So anytime we hear idolatry being talked about, it'll say gods with the lowercase g. So that's what our translators are doing here. But notice that later on down like in verse 5, Aaron and the people, they call this cow that they made with their own hands. Yahweh. So they might be referring to this God as Elohim, like the God who brought them out. And they call him by God's personal name, Yahweh. So this is really messed up of the people attributing what the invisible God did for them to a cow in which they can see and feel and make with their own hands. It's trying to lessen the amazing God to this cow and thus breaking the first two commands or the first two words remember those 10 words that Yahweh gave and inscribed on tablets for Moses to bring down yeah so they break they break the first two worship Yahweh alone and don't make any images to anything ever so those things are broken and while it seems like everything's done they're going to be destroyed Moses intercedes for the people.
0: I think they break the third one as well. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And the respect that they have the name of God on their heads. They are bearing God's name and yet they are engaging in such a despicable act. Completely and utterly not caring for the name in which they bear. Going then into verse 15 and moving on from there. Moses, after having interceded with God on behalf of the people, goes down the mountain. He receives these tablets of the covenant law, which were transcribed by God's own hand. The text says, and then he goes to Joshua in verse seventeen, and he heard the noise of the people as they shouted, and he said to Moses, that's Joshua to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. So as soon as they come near the camp, they see the calf, and Moses's anger burns against them. He takes these tablets of the covenant law that God had just transcribed and he casts them down and breaks them at the base of the mountain. And I find this very interesting in the respect that, as I already said, Moses had just gotten done sprinkling blood on these people and consecrating them to be in covenant with Yahweh. And then Yahweh in turn gives them these tablets of the covenant law. And what do they do? They break that very covenant, not four chapters later. And it's a picture then of the people breaking this covenant and Moses casting these covenant stones down and breaking them as a symbol of their breaking of the covenant. And then Moses goes into full on rage mode. So he goes up to Aaron, his brother. Remember, Aaron is actually set apart as the high priest. We just got done talking about all the underwear that the high priests are supposed to wear specifically because they're consecrated to Yahweh. Like this is such a big deal to the point where they have special underwear that they need to wear to cover up the fact that they're flesh so that they can come before Yahweh. So Aaron is the high priest, is the one who is responsible in part for this golden calf and Moses goes up to him. And what does Aaron say? And Corey already alluded to it. Aaron goes, well, you know, um, yeah, so the people gave me a bunch of gold, tossed it in the fire, and the calf popped out. How about that? So Moses then, continuing on in his fit of rage, he admonishes Aaron. And then he says, who's for the Lord? And so the tribe of Levi come and stand before Moses and say, we are for the Lord. Remember, the Levites are the priests. So they are the tribe that are set apart to be priests to God. And so this is a good sign here in a sense. Interestingly, Corey pointed this out to me at the beginning of the podcast, that what happens next isn't a direct command from God, but is more or less Moses acting kind of on his own initiative or directive. And so Moses then says to the Levites, take a sword, strap it to your waist, and then go kill people. Go kill those who have transgressed this covenant. And so they go and they kill a bunch of Israelites. And the text says about 3,000 are actually slain in this killing. And so it's kind of an interesting picture, an interesting scenario. Again, we look at it and go, man, that's absolutely nuts. But again, remember when I was telling you guys about what a covenant is. A covenant is not simply a promise or a contract. But instead, it is something that is beyond a promise or a contract. It's something that is actually bound in blood. The people are saying that we will do that which, in this case, Yahweh says, lest we die. Our blood be on our own hands, in essence. And so this killing of them, even though it's not a directive from God directly, at least not according to the text, is nonetheless something that we could say is just. It's something that you would expect on behalf of them breaking the covenant. And so Moses's anger that burns against the people, and then as we'll see, Yahweh's anger that continues to burn against the people even after this event, are all very much justified insofar as the people have transgressed the covenant. And so in verse 30, the next day, Moses says to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I'm gonna go up to Yahweh, perhaps, so there's a sort of indefinity to that word, perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. So Moses is going like, I don't know what's going to happen at this point. You have transgressed this covenant that you have made with Yahweh. Maybe I can do something about it. So Moses goes up the mountain and he talks to Yahweh, says, now, if you will forgive their sin, But if not, please blot me out of your book. So he's talking to Yahweh, saying, Blot me out of your book that you have written instead of them. But the Lord, Yahweh, says to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot them out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. And we talked a little bit about this a few chapters ago, the angel of the Lord going before them. But in this sense, God is saying, I'm going to send an angel specifically instead of me, because in the day that I visit the people, I will visit their sin upon them. And so Yahweh sends a plague on the people because they had made a calf. So God is still angry at this point. So Moses goes up to Yahweh to try to make atonement for them. And God says, I'm going to have mercy, but this does not please me. What we should focus on there isn't the, this doesn't please me. That's a given. But instead, from this point on, we're going to see how gracious God actually is to his covenant people, even though they've already transgressed the covenant, even though the just punishment for their transgression is their death. Corey, anything else on 32 before we move on?
1: Yeah. um, Going back to our conversation earlier, just about what was the deal with. Moses telling the people to take the swords in their sides. We don't see the conversation of God telling Moses. Um, And all we do see is that Moses says, this is what God told me. So go and do this. So we do see that Moses claims God told him this. We don't get to see that conversation. Kind of like Dylan was alluding to, this is what the text says. And that's all we were meaning by that, if anyone's kind of hung up. But yeah, this goes back to, I kind of overstated that fact a little bit earlier, but I want to confuse anyone else. Moses says, this is what God says. and Usually when Moses says that, we can trust him on that. And then, of course, after we see Moses having these Levites take out their swords and they killed thousands of people. And at the end, we see God even send a plague on the people because they make the calf, right? So um, Lots of punishment being done, and it all seems like this is right, just as Dylan said in God's eyes, for this punishment to come for such a egregious sin to the God who's trying to come down and be with them. And so, going into 33, so God is now commanding the people, all right, guys, it's time to leave Sinai. So, from... You know, the wilderness travels and up until chapter 19, they get to Sinai. We've been in Sinai this whole time as Moses has been hearing the commandments and words of God. And so now it's time to get up and go. But as you know, this great promise in there, I'm I'm bringing you to this great land, the land flowing with milk and honey. It's the thing that we've been pointing out a lot. A lot of people don't bring this up is that Yahweh is just going to send an angel before his people. But he is not going to go because he's worried that he might consume them on the way, for they are a stiff necked people, talking about Israel. So, yikes. We have again God promising, I'm not coming with you guys. I'm sending an angel. And like we saw, I think it was in Exodus chapter 23, God promises that this angel that Yahweh will send will have his name on him. So, it's going to be a really powerful angel it's really important to obey this angel just as they would obey Yahweh this is really important for the story coming up but we have a little break from the story and we have the idea of this tent of meeting now mind you the tabernacle is not yet set up or being built yet Moses had just received instructions for it and starting in chapter 35 they will start building it and so Moses would take this tent And he would pitch it outside far from camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought Yahweh would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and Yahweh would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, this is uh, verse 11 of chapter 33. This is a pretty important verse, and really cool verse. It says, thus Yahweh used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So really important, right? This is a man who gets to speak with God face to face. But also really important in that section is that the idea of talking face to face with God is a bit of a metaphor because we know that God is not a human to where he's like seeing a face, like he would be talking to Jesus or someone, but this is spirit, like he's hearing from God and talking to God. Just as we've heard stories of this already happening with God and Moses, but he's just hearing from God within this tense. And again, it's not the tabernacle. And again, Moses is not seeing a physical God. That's why we can get to passages like in the Gospel of John, where John says, no one has ever seen the face of God until Jesus comes. Like, wait, what about this passage right here where Moses does? Well, it's a metaphor, meaning that God is really close with Moses and vice versa. And we see this great representative for the people of Israel gets kind of like this Eden treatment because he did not shy away from God on the mountain. So God's happy to have a relationship with him. And then we have a little excerpt about his assistant, Joshua. Yeah, Joshua, like the book of Joshua coming up. He would be outside the tent and not depart from the tent. And he would always be waiting for and waiting on Moses. But Dylan, anything else in this tent of meeting scene you want to cover? So we have Moses meeting with God consistently. And
0: at the close of the last chapter, we have God's anger burning against Israel. And we have the tablets of the covenant law smashed. And so in essence, what we should be thinking is, oh gosh, this covenant has been violated. What is God going to do? And so now we kind of see the outworking then of what God is going to do. And as I said already, it errs on the side of grace and not on the side of just punishment, which we've already seen of God in the past in Genesis. And so here we have Moses meeting face-to-face with God and then moving on from verse 12 down of chapter 33, we see Moses actually talking to God and saying, hey, Yahweh, you need to be before your people. You need to be in the midst of your people. And the reason being, we'll just read from the text. It says, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. That's God talking to Moses. So God knows Moses by name. And you have also found favor in my sight. So Moses says, now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, God, please show me. Now, your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider to this that the nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that we have found favor in your sight and I and your people? Is it not you going with us so that we are distinct, that is, distinct from the nations, I and your people, from all of the other nations on the earth. So basically what Moses is saying is, God, be in our midst. How else will everybody else know that we are your people set apart for you? If you don't go before us, the rest of the nations are going to look at us and go, this is the nation that God rescued from Egypt and abandoned. Don't do that to us, God. Instead, because I have found favor in your sight, go before us. And so God acknowledges and says, I will go before you. And interestingly, one thing I kind of skipped over there is that concept of rest that God says he will give them rest. Keep that in the back of your minds because the idea of rest, we've already talked about it a little bit, and it will be a consistent theme throughout the Old and into the New Testament, this idea that God will give his people rest. So we have it reconfirmed here that God is intending to give his people rest. So verse 17, then. And the Lord said to Moses, the very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. So Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name, Yahweh or A.A. in this case. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by where I will put you on a rock. And then when I pass by, I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you can see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Or as it is implied, you will die. So Moses kind of seemingly takes advantage of perhaps the goodwill of God in this sense and says, "Okay, God, you're going to go before us. That's great. Uh, Also. I want to see your glory. And so God says, okay, I'll show you my glory, but not my face so I don't kill you. So we're going to see this really interesting and awesome cool scene unfold then in chapter 34 here in a minute. And we're going to see one of the most quoted passages in scripture unfold as God actually proclaims something about himself. But before we get there, I want to give Corey, the shot to say anything else about chapter 33 that he wants to. Corey, anything about 33?
1: Yeah, but I think looking through this section of 34 will be cool and will kind of help make sense of it. So uh, let's just go into 34 because it has to do with the character of God. We're going to see actually the most quoted passage in all of scripture. So, like, this is the winner. We'll point it out. But in chapter 34 of Exodus, we have Yahweh saying to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. <clears throat> be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. They lost their chance. And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as Yahweh had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. And here's the most quoted verse, verses six and seven. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Yeah, as Dylan said, this is truly an awesome passage and an awesome visual. I know that we sometimes overuse the word awesome, but I mean, Even just looking at Moses' response there at the end, he was so filled with awe, he just bowed down and worshiped. I mean, what else is there to do? Seeing the glory of God made manifest and passing in front of him, and he's just showing himself to be so big and mighty where God's hand can cover this whole cleft of a rock that Moses is standing in. Just an amazing, amazing scene. And these, this was only for Moses' eyes. This is something that the rest of the people missed out on in not going up the mountain. All right, the people were too scared to see Yahweh on his terms. And so they said, Moses, you do it for us. And so what we've seen since that moment, and really from Exodus, the more that someone, mainly Moses, draws in close to Yahweh, the closer that Yahweh himself will also draw into that person. So we see that Yahweh loves people, right? And while the people had some reason to be scared, it was misplaced because they didn't realize the character of Yahweh. And when we see Moses really understand the character of Yahweh, and that's why he was so bold to try and parlay, to quote Jack Sparrow, tried to parlay with God saying, no, 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 don't kill the people. And God says, okay, Moses, I won't kill the people. Okay, God. And, and Dylan kind of brought this out already. Well, you won't kill the people. How about you also travel with us? And now about now you show me your glory. And I just want to reemphasize what Dylan already said in that place because it points to this profound truth. As we draw close to God, God draws close to us. He is not like a human where we need to worry, like, oh, is he going to like me? If I draw in close, am I going to look like an idiot and they're going to back away? No, not with God. That's why Jesus can teach on prayer with illustrations like just keep pounding on God's door, just like you would your neighbor asking for some bread for your out-of-town guest. Just keep asking. God won't get bothered by you. Keep drawing in close. And not only is God just not bothered, but we see from the story that God is stoked to do it. He's so stoked when we want more of him and we should be stoked knowing that God wants more of us, more time, us, us in here with Moses. Right. And so we see God proclaim just uh, the other passage I want to show back in 33, kind of blends 33 and 34 together is God shows us more of his character. So in chapter 33, a line that gets quoted a lot is that, God will be gracious to whom he will be gracious to and will show mercy on whom he will show mercy. And we say, okay, yeah, if that makes sense, like God knows more than me. So if he chooses someone to show mercy or grace to, then it's good reason for it. And I shouldn't question that. And then we see in verses six and seven of chapter 34, we see that same word gracious come. We see God being merciful, slow to anger, all these good traits to deal with. But also we see the side of God that is just So not just love and merciful and faithful, but he's also going to punish iniquity. Right? He's willing to forgive it through repentance. But we see this full character revelation of God. And so if you're ever wondering, like, how, how can I show people who God is? Like, what's a great verse to go to? Well, be like every other biblical writer and quote this passage. Look at this God. This is who he is. And we can trust it because that is what he says about himself. Dylan, any other thoughts?
0: Yeah. The passage here that we're dealing with in 34 at the beginning is one of, if not the only location where God is actually self proclaiming something about himself. This isn't being said by another character about God or a biblical author about God. The author of Exodus has put these words into the mouth of the character God. And so God is actually saying these things about himself. This is a very important text, as is implied by the fact that it's the most quoted text in the scriptures. And so you'll probably see us come back and reference this text a bunch. We might even do a blog post or a YouTube video specifically dedicated to this particular passage, because Anything that God says about himself is fundamentally important to who God is. So when we're building any sort of thing, any sort of about who this Yahweh is, we should probably start with what he says about himself and then build from there. And with that now, moving into verse 10, we have something interesting happening. So Moses has already gone up before God. And as Corey said, parlayed God, basically saying, God, Please don't kill your people. God says, okay. And Moses says, Oh, also, would you mind going in the midst of your people so that the nations know that we are your people? And God says, Okay. And these two things are things that were actually already assumed in the covenant. When the covenant was made, this is what God said was going to happen, that he wasn't going to kill his people. And that he's going to go in the midst of them he's going to be their God and they're going to be his people. And so Because they broke the covenant, it's now the case that Moses is actually having to ask God to do this out of grace rather than out of covenantal obligation. And God has mercy, God has grace, as we've already discussed. And so in verse 10, we see God reestablishing the covenant. And so because Moses, when he had come down the mountain, he had smashed the tablets, representing the breaking of the covenant that had taken place by building the golden calf. Moses then reestablishes the covenant before the people, and God, through Moses, reestablishes this covenant. And it says, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord or the work of Yahweh, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So, this is a reestablishment of the covenant that had already been cut a few chapters prior with Moses sprinkling the blood on the people. So it says, observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and Jebusites, all the ites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god Except Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, because he is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and they sacrifice to their gods, you're invited and you do that same thing. And so basically, we have a reestablishment of what we were already hoping would happen. When God first actually came to Moses, before the covenant was actually cut, we had the little goal of getting to Sinai, worshiping on the mountain. The people failed that goal. They didn't go up the mountain. Moses goes up the mountain. Nevertheless, God still cuts a covenant with his people. That's failure number one, and God being merciful for the first time. Then, after God cuts his covenant with his people in spite of his people, Moses comes down, breaks the covenant law tablets because the people had whored themselves out after another God that they called Yahweh. So that's strike number two. Yet God is still gracious and merciful to his people and reconfirms the covenant so that now we can get towards the big goal that we had when God first spoke to Moses of getting the people to the promised land. They didn't go up the mountain, but nevertheless, we can still get to the promised land. We can still get that rest that I talked about that God has promised for his people. Once they defeat the inhabitants of the land, that have rebelled against God. And there's to do so entirely, they not to make a covenant with these people, specifically because of the fact that these other people follow after other gods. Lest Israel also follow after these other gods, don't make a covenant with them, wipe them out, claim the land. Continuing on, verse 17, I can sense the spite in God's voice when he says "Is you shall not make for yourself any gods cast metal.
1: I hear it too. You're not alone.
0: Yeah, seriously. Like, I mean, I, I already said this, but I'm going to say it in one concise propositional command. that's no, not this. You shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because remember, when they left Egypt, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was established so that they would remember what God had done for them in bringing them out of Egypt. Egypt, so seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib, For in the month of Aviv, you came out of Egypt. All the open womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of your donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if it's not redeemed, you're gonna break its neck. All the firstborns of your sons you will redeem and none shall appear before me empty handed. Why should they not appear before God empty handed specifically because of the fact that in order to be consecrated, these people need to be something else because like I talked about at the beginning of this episode, this is something extraordinary. God meeting with something that is wrought with sin or ordinary God, extraordinary and ordinary sin don't mix. And so in order for them to come before God, they need to do so on God's terms. And in turn, God will be gracious and merciful. This isn't God being capricious or evil or anything like that, like we might maybe perhaps first assume when reading all these rules and things, specifically because of the fact that God had every right to kill them for the breaking of the covenant, and he didn't. This isn't a story of God being a jerk to Israel. This is a story of God consistently being merciful to a stiff-necked, as the text says, stiff-necked people. And so, again, we get the Sabbath reconfirmed in verse 21. Three times in the year, in verse 23, all your males appear before Yahweh, the God of Israel, for I cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go to appear before Yahweh, your God, three times in the year. And that doesn't even sound like that much. Three times in the year you're going to go before Yahweh. You'll not offer... The blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of your first fruits on the ground you shall bring to the house of Yahweh your God. You'll not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. It's an interesting thing there. I think Corey might have already pointed this out, but the fact that Jews even to this day won't have cheese on their hamburger to avoid eating any sort of goat or cow with their mother's milk. Uh, And the Lord said to Moses, write these words for in accordance with these words. I've made a covenant with you and with Israel. So again, this is a reconfirmation of the covenant that had already been made. This is something that kind of sticks out to me. And Corey and I bantered about this a little bit at the beginning of the podcast. And I, I still don't know what to make of it exactly. But so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank. This is Moses being up the mountain with God. And he wrote on the tablets, the word of the covenant the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words. So God actually transcribed with his own finger, the text says, the initial tablet that Moses broke. Now, in this reconfirmation of the covenant, on behalf of Moses' intercession, you have Moses then being the one to transcribe the tablets of the covenant law. And I don't know what the significance to that is, if any. It is interesting, though, that we do see in Moses a... Christ tight. The people failed. The people broke the law, the covenant, the people were subject to death. And through Moses' procession to God, God spares them and reconfirms the covenant. And in a sense, we're going to see another character do something very similar. <clears throat> Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. Typical Sunday school answer there. But again, I'm not entirely sure if there's any significance at all, or what the significance might be to this particular fact that Moses is the one who then transcribes the new tablets. But nonetheless, new tablets are transcribed. Corey, do you have any thoughts about why it was Moses who wrote them at all?
1: Yeah, I have an idea. And again, this is something that the text does not make very clear as Dylan mentioned. So, you know, take this with a grain of salt for its worth, but when I have a a kind of gray passage before me, I try to look at it, the big context and see other passages that are kind of similar and how these other passages are interpreted, you know, maybe by the author. But a common theme that we have seen since the beginning is that as people have sinned, they get further away from God. And we saw that in Genesis, we're seeing that in Exodus. We talked even about how when the people did not come up the mountain to meet with God, they were given commandments instead, which is not nearly as good as a relationship. But even in those tablets that God gave them, God wrote on them with his finger. And so what they get traded out for is something that Moses wrote down, something that any ordinary human could do. So they took something that was really amazing and then got something less than what was originally offered. right? So the tablets, I'm sure, had the same words, um, same voice of God giving them. But this time Moses wrote them. So again, not a huge deal. And, you know, don't take that to the bank. I'm not sure if uh, the check will get bounced or not. Uh, that is just an idea that we see over and over again. So that's why I kind of lean towards that interpretation of this. That's my one cent. might be half a cent. I don't know. Uh, but then we go from there to the, the shining face of Moses. Right. So Moses comes down with these two tablets of the testimony and Moses didn't know it, but his face was shining because he had been talking with God. And Aaron and all the people saw this and they were afraid to go near Moses. What is going on with you. And so what Moses started to do in realizing that the people would fear him if his face was shining, he would show them that his face was shining after he would meet with God and spend time with him for some time and then he would put a veil over his face to maybe make the people think that he didn't want to freak them out what was actually happening is that the longer moses would go without spending time with yahweh his face would shine less and less it would diminish in glory and so he would put the veil on to keep the people kind of in line and fearing him cuz would work with the people and so he would cover up the fading glory and then take it off We'd go and meet with Yahweh again. And you would come back down and say, hey guys, look it, I just met with Yahweh. And the people are like, oh, okay, that's right. You're still meeting with Yahweh. We should still listen to you because you speak for Yahweh. And then this would happen over and over where he would he would show the glory as it was at its brightest and then cover it so that people wouldn't realize the glory was fading. We see that Moses, although he gets to meet with God, got diminishing. All right, So even this really good relationship that Moses has with God, it isn't the best because it diminishes. It's not like he, I don't know, what would be better? Maybe let's say like the spirit of God living within him. Yeah, that would be pretty awesome. So if he had the spirit of God living within him, he wouldn't need to worry about this glory fading because he would always have God in him. And actually, Paul makes this argument about how great it is to have the spirit living within us because he doesn't fade within us. But yeah, so we have the shiny face of Moses after we had talked about the shiny cow. Hence the name of the episode, shiny cow and shiny face. But we have a lot of book left and we're going to quickly gloss over it. So after the shiny face of Moses 35, we talk more about Sabbath regulations and contributions for the tabernacle. And then for the next few chapters, we have the tabernacle actually being constructed. And then the garments that the priests are to wear get completed. And in chapter 40, the tabernacle actually gets set up, all right? Tent pegs in. And what we should be wondering, as they're making this tabernacles, did they do it to the exact specifications that Yahweh had laid out in the previous you know, five chapters from like, 25 to 31 and the litmus test is if they did it right is if god does what he planned to do with it which was to fill it with his glory and so if you don't feel like going and comparing note for note tick for tack just go to the end of exodus and so we're going to go to exodus chapter 40 and look at the end so at 32 33 it was erected moses Inspected the work. It was good. It seemed to him, verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. So big thumbs up, gold star. The people did what was right in God's eyes. They made the tabernacle to the exact specifications as Yahweh desired. But there's a problem because the next verse, verse 35 says, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. Because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. But we should be asking ourselves, wait, wasn't the point of the tabernacle is for people to dwell with God while his cloud is there? And hasn't Moses already been dwelling with God in this type of way? And the answer is yes, but the author is trying to show us something here. All right, problem is that people are not able to go into the tabernacle because Yahweh's glory fills it. So something needs to change, right? So God's glory, that's not going to change because God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The People are going to have to change and adjust to Yahweh's strict code of holiness and righteousness, right? And so that's what the whole book of Leviticus will be about. Leviticus is the book of problem solving, solving the problem of people not able to enter the tabernacle, and to be in Yahweh's presence. And so that's the big idea from the end of Exodus. Dylan, any last thoughts? I don't think so.
0: I think that is a fantastic place on which to end of Exodus. Again, we get a cliffhanger, a problem that needs solving, just as we did at the end of Genesis. And so we're going to be venturing into Leviticus coming up soon. as though we ended exodus far quicker than we ended genesis but perhaps that's only perceived and not actual Nonetheless, guys thank you for for joining us through the book of exodus two books down 64 in your american bible to go i think we're making good time guys thank you for tuning into this episode of the scripture chronicles podcast if you did enjoy the show typical plug please do leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. That is the number one podcast portal. If you would like the show to get out to more earlobes so that other people can be blessed by it just as you were blessed by it. That is one of the best ways to do it. Another way is to actually tell people about the show. Tell them about the website, thebibleisastory.com. Share it on Facebook, whatever. In either event, just allow for people to become uh, familiar with the show so that more people can be blessed by it if you were blessed by it as well. Also, uh, if you do want to support the show even further than that, you can donate to it. It is paid for completely out of pocket and nothing is free. So, if you would like to do that, you can do that through the Patreon page. You can access that by going to our website, com, and clicking on donate. Other than that, check out our Facebook page. That's the best place for real time information and other things to engage with us, etc. Do that. Their handle is Scripture Chronicles. You can also email us, scripturechronicles at gmail.com. And finally, as I have already said, the website is the Bible is a story.com. On there, you'll find resources, blog posts, the podcast itself, the YouTube channel, and other things as well. It's kind of the central hub for everything Scripture Chronicles related. So check that out. Other than that, guys, thank you so much for joining us in Exodus. Chances are, we're going to bum you guys out by going through one more Exodus podcast here next week just to give a quick wrap up and summation of Exodus, just as we did in Genesis. So don't be fooled. As always, Shalom, shalom Adios. adios.